This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My gender pronouns are she, her, hers, and you are listening to our series on Venezuela. Today, I'm joined by Gabriel Hetland, professor of Latin American, Caribbean, and U.S. Latino studies at the University of Albany and author of The Crooked Line from Populist Mobilization to Participatory Democracy in Chavez-era Venezuela. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Of course. So let's start with the big question. What's happening in Venezuela right now? Um, So it's been an interesting week, to say the least. Um, As listeners may know, uh, the weekend was um, exciting, again, to say the least, with the U.S. uh, planning to deliver, quote unquote, humanitarian aid um, by breaching, literally breaching uh, the Venezuelan-Colombian border and also the border with uh, Venezuela and Brazil. And then some aid coming in through Curaçao, an island off the north coast of Venezuela. And the sort of point of that exercise was explicitly not so much about actually delivering aid to Venezuelans, but to pressure Maduro, the president of Venezuela, to step down or be removed from office. And they hoped to do that by embarrassing him, by showing him to be a sort of dictator who doesn't care about the well-being of his people, who's willing to starve his people in order to stay in power and keep aid out, and to encourage military um, soldiers, generals, military uh, personnel in general to defect from the government. So it seems like that effort was more or less a failure. There's reports that, you know, anywhere from dozens to maybe a couple hundred Um, mostly soldiers and a few, you know, lower level military personnel did defect, but they didn't stay in Venezuela as people had sort of hoped. They went mostly to the Colombian side, um, and seemed to be just staying there for fear of, um, coming back to Venezuela. Um, and the effort to, certainly there was media images of, uh, Maduro, um, dancing in Caracas while the aid was, uh, being blocked by, uh, Venezuelan forces. Um, and that was sort of used by uh, folks like Marco Rubio, Juan Guaido, the self-declared um, interim president of Venezuela and the head of the National Assembly, and then Julio Borges, who's a opposition leader in Venezuela, to call implicitly on the part of Rubio and explicitly on the part of uh, Borges um, and somewhat in between for Guaido for military intervention by the U.S. Um, so that happened over the weekend. And then the last couple of days have seen a group of... Um, a meetings, a series of meetings take place, one by the so-called Group of Lima, uh, which includes a number of Latin American states, mostly conservative governments in Brazil, Colombia, um, and elsewhere. Um, and there's been Security Council meetings in the United Nations. But the really important one, the Group of Lima, which had been supporting the U.S. efforts, explicitly said that they are not in favor of military intervention. Um, so as of now, it seems like that option, which the U.S., clearly was hoping to get a little bit more traction for is not being supported by even conservative governments in the region. 
so it's a little bit of a you know status quo in venezuela i think at the moment um although there's obviously still a lot of uncertainty um and uh we'll have to see uh what happens next so that's sort of you know the immediate picture of what's happening in venezuela right now the sort of more medium-term picture for uh listeners um to sort of just grapple with what's happening is that um, there's a conflict, a, a very prolonged um, conflict that goes back, you know, 15, 20 years even between the opposition and the government um, over uh, who's going to be in control of Venezuela. Um, and the heightened conflict has been happening over the last, you know, five and a half weeks um, with uh, Guaido declaring himself to be the interim president, being supported by the U.S. Um, and really upping the ante and trying to sort of provoke uh, a much uh, more fiery conflict within Venezuela to try to get Maduro out of power. So there's a lot more to be said about all that, but I think that's you know more or less what's happening in Venezuela right now. And in a Jacobin piece, you outlined three principles, non-interventionism, self-determination, and solidarity with the oppressed that we should guide our response to Venezuela by. Could you expand on those three? Um, sure. Yeah. Happy to expand on those. Um, Principles. So the first one is just the idea of non-intervention, and that's synonymous with the idea of national sovereignty. So uh, we obviously live in a world of nation states, um, and the basic principle of national sovereignty is that nation states shouldn't interfere in the internal affairs of other nation states. And I think for sort of you know leftists or progressives or really anyone I would say who's reasonable, this is a very important principle, in particular given the inequality of the world system of nation states. There are more powerful countries, the U.S. being the most powerful country right now, but there's other very powerful ones, Russia, China, you know, certain states in the European Union. Um, and then there's much less powerful states like Venezuela, Bolivia, Haiti, um, Honduras. We can think of many, many states. So um, over the you know centuries, more powerful states have tried to push less powerful states around. They've done this in, through colonialism, through imperialism in a variety of ways and through neo-colonialism, neo-imperialism. And so, unless there's a principle to sort of say that's not okay to happen, uh, there's nothing in the realm of sort of um, thinking to say, why, why can't this happen? So, the principle of non-intervention or national sovereignty says that states can't just do this to other states. If we um, allow that, then it would basically be a sort of law of the jungle and force would dictate what happens. So, whoever the most powerful state is, they would be able to do anything. Um, so that's the basic idea of non-intervention. And I think that it, it has a clear application in the case of Venezuela. The U.S. has literally no right whatsoever to intervene in Venezuelan affairs, um, period. Um, and so the current efforts that the U.S. is making to do that, I think that people who believe in non-intervention, people who believe in not, uh, national sovereignty should be opposed to. Um, and there's also, I think, practical reasons beyond the sort of moral argument for opposing that, that the U.S. has actually done a lot of damage in Venezuela over the last couple of decades. They've encouraged the most radical, most violent, hardcore right-wing uh, opposition, which is engaged in sort of terror campaigns within Venezuela um, to terrorize the population, to, um, you know, occasionally set people on fire, uh, to bomb uh, public buildings and schools. Um, there's been beheadings that have happened in, in various protests. Um, so there's a lot, by the way, a lot of legitimate peaceful protests, but the U.S. has always been encouraging the most violent and the most sort of hardcore factions within the opposition. 
um, and that's wrought a lot of damage in Venezuela over the years. The U.S. is also um, inflicting damage through sanctions. Um, they've been doing this for you know about five years, four and a half, five years now. Um, under Obama, continuing under Trump, and the sanctions have really escalated since 2017 and worsened an economic crisis, which we can talk about because it has complicated origins. So the U.S. has really tried to push this agenda of regime change for a long time, and it's had bad consequences within Venezuela. Um, so I think there's a very strong case to make for this principle of non-intervention. There's some exceptions that I lay out in this article where if there's a genocide happening or if there's a humanitarian catastrophe that the uh, country in question is inflicting on its own people, then there can be exceptions. I think we need to think about those exceptions, but it would be utterly absurd to think that the U.S. could argue that A, that there's a genocide, that's just not true, or B, that there's a humanitarian catastrophe that the U.S. is not responsible for in part. Um, so there's not... I think we can argue over whether there's a humanitarian catastrophe. There's certainly a very serious crisis within Venezuela now. Um, but the U.S. is one of the actors that has made that crisis worse, even though, and we can speak about this a little later, that the Venezuelan government bears a lot of responsibility, but the U.S. has played a really important role in that. So it is utterly absurd and totally hypocritical to think that the U.S. could play a, a role in stopping it. And the, you know, the most concrete way of uh, putting this point is right now, the U.S. has imposed oil sanctions on Venezuela, which is effectively depriving the government and therefore the Venezuelan people through government resources of billions of dollars, um, probably per week, but certainly billions of dollars over the coming months. Um, and they were offering $20 million in aid over the weekend. So it's just absurd to think that they're serious about helping uh, Venezuela with aid when they're actually making things worse with their sanctions. So that's the first uh, principle. The second one is... Um, the idea of supporting self-determination. And this one, I think, gets into some trickier issues with respect to Venezuela. And I think that, you know, it. before entering this conversation, it's important to reiterate the U.S. has literally zero right to interfere in uh, Venezuelan affairs, period. So anything else that we might say about the issue of self-determination means nothing about the U.S.'s right to interfere, which it has none uh, whatsoever. Um, so the right to self-determination is simple, that people should be able to participate in decisions that affect their lives. Usually in its sort of more liberal democratic framework, uh, this is considered the right to electoral democracy, the right to sort of, you know, freedom of speech and assembly and things like that. Um, and certainly the right to elect officials who will then make political decisions in a more radical form. We can think about this much more encompassing as sort of a radical participatory democracy, even a socialist democracy, economic democracy, but that, you know, might be for another conversation. Um, so even in its more limited form, the right to self-determination would say that people should be able to, at the very least, elect leaders who are going to make policy decisions. And it's important to recognize that that has happened in Venezuela over the last 20 years. There's lots of critiques, but I don't think they have a whole lot of substance for most of the Chavista period. There were repeated elections. Um, the Carter Center, you know, was there for a number of the elections, although they haven't been there in a while. But even, you know, five or six years ago, Jimmy Carter, maybe a little longer, but five, seven or eight years ago, Jimmy Carter uh, was saying that they have the best electoral system in the world. It was, you know, free of fraud. So that was happening. Unfortunately, over the last couple of years, there's been a real deterioration and people debate you know, why this has happened. There's some people who say that it was in the context of a siege um, by the U.S. And there's certainly some truth to that. But 
a major reason uh, for the government sort of imposing, you know, effectively more autocratic and what we could describe as anti-democratic measures, such as suspending elections, um, committing electoral fraud in certain instances, banning candidates from seeking political office who were opposed to the government. Um, so they've engaged in these things. And so that means that the legitimacy of the government and the principle of self-determination hasn't been clearly implemented in Venezuela for at least the last two or three years. Um, and there was an election that happened in May last year where Maduro won uh, with about 6.2 million votes. And I think it was you know well over 60% of the vote. But um, it's widely sort of denounced as not a free and fair election because there was a leading opposition candidate who was banned from running and even people opposed to um, the U.S. and supportive of Maduro have ad admitted that that was politically motivated. So there's a strong argument to make that I think in the limited form, self-determination is not happening in Venezuela. Um, so that would that means that, you know, people in Venezuela, some including on the left, Edgardo Lander is a um, social scientist and a leftist intellectual there have been calling for elections. And there's different ways this call has sort of uh, surfaced. Some people have called for presidential elections. The government, by contrast, has called for national assembly elections. Lander um, has called for across the board elections. So actually, uh, you know, sort of two step process, which would start with a referendum about holding elections and then move on to the holding of elections. So that um, you know, call, it seems to me like it's a legitimate call, given the lack of self-determination in Venezuela right now. And so I think if we want to be consistent with principles, if we want to think that self-determination is an important thing, it's very difficult to oppose that call. Um, but saying that one supports that call um, is not the same, again, I think it's just important to emphasize in this moment as saying that the US has a right to make that call, that Canada has a right to make that call, that any other government has the right to make that call. Um, I think that, you know, progressive, radicals, leftists, concerned citizens can certainly be supportive of that call. But that's a different thing than saying that governments that have an, a history of imperialist action happening right now in Venezuela um, have the right to support it. And then actually the logistics of what a quote unquote free and fair election would look like in Venezuela are somewhat complicated. Um, I think that there's very legitimate critiques of the National Electoral Council, um, which has played a role in some fraud in recent years, very different, again, from what happened before that, um, and is clearly very loyal to the Maduro administration. So having a new Electoral Council would be necessary. Um, but the U.S. sanctions that are occurring right now, the U.S. war effort on Venezuela that's occurring right now, are also very clear obstacles to a free and fair election. And there's a parallel with uh, Nicaragua in 1990, when there was an election held there after 12 years of war. Um, so there's obvious differences. But after 12 years of war, the, uh, the people of Nicaragua in that election voted the Sandinista government out of power. Um, but it was a, essentially a, a gun was being held to the head of the people of Nicaragua saying that if you want to, you know, have the war end, the Contra war, um, and you have to vote for the opposition candidate. Um, and so that was clearly not a free and fair election. And I think the sanctions in Venezuela and the U.S. threats of war, um, which are often, you know, pretty explicit, also have that effect of preventing the possibility of free and fair elections right now. Um, a third obstacle that I am increasingly worried about is the demonization of Chavismo and Chavistas. Um, the whole project of the left in Venezuela has been 
subjected to ruthless mocking, criticism, and, you know, more serious threats against particular individuals, threats to ban socialist parties, threats to ban uh, Chavismo in general. So I think that any sort of free and fair election would obviously need to include, you know, guarantees for the opposition. That's without a doubt. But it would also need to include guarantees for the left, guarantees for Chavistas to be able to freely express themselves. So there's some real legitimate worries. So the actual details of that, I think, are complicated. Um, but I think that, you know, people are making that call within Venezuela. Um, and I think it's a duty to say that, you know, we would support that call because the, there has been this violation of self-determination happening. Um, and then the final thing I think is arguably the most important point, which is solidarity with the oppressed. Um, so I think that, you know, the simple point there is that people on the left should not have loyalty primarily to governments that quote unquote call themselves socialist or leftist or revolutionaries, but to ordinary people, to the poorest, to workers, to the, the groups that in Latin America are called the popular sectors. People who are the most vulnerable, the most marginalized, the most discriminated against, the most exploited, the most oppressed. Um, and it's clear that right now, people, uh, that group of popular sectors, the poor, the vulnerable, are suffering profoundly in Venezuela. And they're suffering certainly from the U.S. sanctions. Um, they're suffering anxiety and worse from the U.S. threats of war. But they're also suffering from a devastating economic crisis, um, which the government of Venezuela bears very significant responsibility for for a variety of uh, reasons, not managing oil um, well, not diversifying the economy, but in particular, this um, mismanagement of a currency policy, which allowed hundreds of billions of dollars to be illicitly diverted and massive amounts of corruption to happen. Additionally, there has been significant repression. Um, there's been significant repression against the peaceful opposition. There's been significant repression against the left um, there's been, you know, leftist candidates who've not been allowed to take office after they won. Um, this happened in Simone Planes, a small municipality in the state of Laura in central western Venezuela. Um, Aporea.org, which is a dissident Chavista website, has been blocked over the last couple of weeks uh, by the major state-owned internet providers within Venezuela. So there's, and then there's been repression of popular sector uh, protest, violent repression within Venezuela. So that is a real concern and that is directly affecting the most oppressed, the most vulnerable people. So solidarity with the oppressed obviously, totally obviously means opposing uh, the U.S. sanctions, the oil sanctions in particular. It totally obviously means opposing um, the U.S. efforts to have a military solution, in quotes, to the Venezuelan issue. Um, but I think it also means taking seriously Venezuelans um, suffering at the hands of the government, economic and political, um, and really being attentive to that, really listening to polls that suggest a majority of Venezuelans want Maduro to be gone, uh, listening to reports on the ground, which suggests that many, many people in the popular sector don't like Guaido, but they also don't like Maduro. So they really want something else. Um, so trying to create space for Venezuelans to really decide their future. It's a complicated question. It's not entirely simple, but I think those are the things we have to be grappling with right now um, to really understand what's happening in Venezuela. Could you elaborate on the right-wing faction of the opposition that the U.S. has supported and the violence they've enacted? Sure. Um, so the opposition to uh, 
to Maduro and the opposition to Chavez runs the gamut from the sort of far left, far right. Um, and uh, there's been various sort of major instances of opposition protests. There was a coup in 2002. There was an oil lockout from above in 2002, 2003. More recently, there's been waves of violence in 2014 and 2017. And those waves have been led by a middle, you know, somewhat middle upper class student movement have, has had an important role. There's been uh, small groups of youth uh, who are often masked, who are inflicting violence. Um, and the U.S. in those waves, you know, the most recent ones being the 2014, 2017 uh, waves of violence that happened in Venezuela were called guarimbas, which are sort of street mobilizations. And it's really important to recognize that there was lots of peaceful protest happening and the government was responding in ways that we shouldn't support. So there was repression undoubtedly happening there. Um, but there also was a sort of, I think it's somewhat appropriate to say, a fascist element of street violence, which was directed at, um, you know, innocent citizens, um, directed at state personnel, including state security forces, but designed to inflict them to inflict chaos and damage. Um, and the U.S. was cheerleading that. And there's clear evidence. Um, a colleague, Tim Gill, has done research showing the U.S. was funding that um, efforts. And the U.S. had very clear links, um, in particular, to these more radical factions. And Juan Guaido, um, even though he you know, has a nice discourse, he appears very reasonable in the media, he is from the more radical factions of the opposition. Um, so I think that gives a lot of people in Venezuela pause, including people who are upset about Maduro. Um, so that is, you know, and that faction, I guess, to sort of, you know, finish unpacking it, they've really ascended since roughly 2000, um, you know, starting in 2014, with that first wave of violence. Before that, there was a more moderate faction, also sort of on the right, but a more center right uh, party, Primero Justicia, which itself has internal divisions. And some parts of that party have gone much more to the right. Uh, recently, but they had a more moderate, let's, you know, get along with Chavismo, let's copy Chavismo, let's, um, you know, actually see it as a legitimate force. Um, they lost a lot of influence since 2013. Um, and then since the 2015 National Assembly election, which the opposition won, this more hard right faction has really ascended. And they are clearly, um, you know, clearly have the ear of the Trump administration and clearly have sort of been uh, directing things. In terms of what their program would be if they were to get in the government, it seems likely that they would implement, you know, very market-based uh, development program, often called neoliberalism um, or free market fundamentalism, which would be very friendly to the U.S., very friendly to foreign capital, and probably inflict very significant costs on the poor, cutting social spending, uh, cutting education, cutting health care, cutting subsidies to the poor, and the most vulnerable. So there's, you know, very significant reasons to worry about what they might actually do if they got into power. As you mentioned, at the core of this discussion is what the US and a lot of international bodies call a humanitarian crisis. Every guest on the podcast has said there's blame to share. But what exactly caused this crisis? Um, so there is a real crisis in Venezuela. And one of the things I think we can very clearly call the government out for is not recognizing the severity of the crisis. Um, repeatedly, government officials go on the media and deny the severity of the crisis. Often they deny the crisis exists. 
whatsoever. Um, but 3 million people have left Venezuela in recent years. Um, there's estimates that, you know, half the population is not eating three meals a day. There's other estimates of 80 to 90% poverty. There's clear, you know, government statistics came out a couple years ago from the Ministry of Health showing that um, maternal uh, mortality and infant mortality rates were skyrocketing. Um, and immediately the health minister was fired uh, right after that, or certain personnel in the health ministry were fired who were responsible for releasing those data. So it's utterly clear that there is a very serious crisis. I think that um, it's probably not as severe as the crisis in Yemen. I mean, I'd say almost undoubtedly not as severe as that, but it's nonetheless a very severe crisis. Um, The causes of the crisis are indeed multiple. I fully agree with what other guests have said on the program. A primary one is that under, um, under Chavez, they implemented currency control starting in 2003, and they did that to stem capital flight. So that was connected to the conflict between the government and the opposition in those years. And those um, currency controls served an important purpose in stemming and reducing capital flight for a number of years. But even leftist economists said that after maybe 2006, they didn't really continue to serve that particular purpose. Um, other economists have said that they allowed for, you know, sort of short-term consumption to continue by deferring the costs uh, down the road. Um, and so they might have served other, you know, political and economic purposes. But they had a major cost, uh, which was a huge and escalating gap between the official currency and the real currency, which led to immense opportunities for people who had access to government funded dollars, essentially, which they could turn into the Venezuelan currency, the Bolivares, and actually make a huge profit. So they were supposed to get sort of currency at a very low official rate. And they were supposed to buy, you know, food, medicine, basic goods and import things. But instead, it's clear that, you know, billions, even hundreds of billions of dollars were diverted from that purpose to instead simply get the currency at a lower rate and then trade it for the higher rate on the black market to make an immense profit. And it led to other sorts of distortions in the economy. Um, It's one of the main causes of the hyperinflation that we're seeing now. Um, So that, you know, that particular policy is a major uh, problem. And it was something the government was aware of for years and years and didn't do anything significant to actually address. So that's clearly on the government. Um, the government's failure to sort of diversify away from oil um, is more complicated because that's very difficult to do. It's a problem that goes back decades within Venezuela. It's not something that started under Chavez or started under Maduro uh, by any means, but Chavez and Maduro clearly failed to address that. Um, the problem of oil dependency got worse under Chavez, and so that meant that Venezuela was very vulnerable to the um, increase in the price of oil, or not sorry, the decrease in the price of oil, rather, which happened in um, mid-2014. And that's sort of a major um, cause of the current crisis as well. So then the, the other part of the, um, you know, explaining the crisis is the action of the opposition and the action of the U.S. And I think this has sort of a direct uh, manifestation and a more indirect manifestation. And it's very difficult to sort of tease out with any sort of precision um, how much of each of these mattered, but clearly they both mattered. So the more sort of direct one is the direct damage that violent protest in 2014, 2017 caused to 
the Venezuelan economy, caused to um, you know public infrastructure, to food stores which were burned and looted, and you know just sort of that direct uh, violence and the direct sort of uh, cost that it had. And then there's also you know on a direct front U.S. sanctions which have had you know, especially again, since 2017, they have directly inhibited Venezuela's ability to incur debt. And they've directly, you know, dramatically reduced oil production, which is, you know, nosedive since 2017, even though it, you know, had declined um, before for, you know, more long term mismanagement issues. But those are really direct, indirectly, the violence and the US sort of support for that and the US support for, you know, radical opposition to the government have just created a climate of polarization or, you know, maybe created too strong a room, but certainly exacerbated, um, fed, facilitated, maintained, worsened uh, this climate of polarization, climate of anxiety. They've made it more difficult for the government to take difficult, challenging, technically difficult policy decisions about the currency, um, even raising the price of oil. There was discussions in 2014 about doing that. And then that just got off the table after the conflict started a month later. So that sort of indirect effects of, you know, the violent part of the opposition and the U.S. policy have also played an important role in, you know, worsening the crisis. Um, and that's been going on for, you know, the whole period of Chavista, um, you know, Chavismo and Maduro. And you mentioned earlier class dynamics. What exactly are the class dynamics at play here? Um, sure. So, you know, very blunt um and not entirely accurate, but the sort of blunt class dynamics is that for most of the Chavista period, the poor working class, the so-called popular sectors were supportive by and large of Chavismo. Um, that wasn't across the board. I mean, if you went to a poor neighborhood in various parts of Caracas, for instance, you'd find that most people would be supportive of Chavismo. So they might have, you know, anywhere from 55 to even 70, 80% of the vote in those neighborhoods. Um, so there was, you know, some opposition, but not all that significant in most of those neighborhoods for much of the Chavista period. It, you know, it varied a little bit. And then overwhelmingly, the uh, middle, upper, you know, and elite classes in Venezuela were supportive of the opposition. So that, you know, broad split was certainly true, and it certainly continues to be true to this day. So if you think about the core support for the opposition, it's going to be the very upper classes and the core support uh, for the government, which is very much reduced, one has to recognize, is going to be more, much more so amongst the popular classes, the military, which is not a class sector per se, but they're also an important support for Maduro these days. Um, but that, you know, that broad class split has become much more complicated in the last couple of years. Even in, and that sort of really started, I think, in 2015 to be visible at the electoral level. That was an important National Assembly election. And I was down in Venezuela as an observer for the election and, you know, talked to dozens of popular class voters on the day of the election. And the vast majority of them where I was uh, were planning to vote for the opposition. And then looking at the electoral data, it showed that, you know, certain neighborhoods that had been, you know, bastions of Chavismo for you know, its entire period, 23 de Enero being, you know, 23rd of January being an emblematic one in Caracas, uh, voted a majority for the opposition. So there was a shift that started to happen. And the people I talked to then weren't in favor of neoliberal policies. They were just in favor of change, as they told me. And the economic crisis was pretty severe already. 
Um, there was massive shortages of goods. There was very long lines to get subsidized goods. And they just wanted things to work better. They wanted to see an end to the lines, as they told me. They wanted to see an end to the you know, severe economic crisis. Um, and I think since then, and probably accentuating in the last couple of years, the you know popular classes within Venezuela have increasingly uh, moved away from Maduro. And polls suggest now that really the majority of Venezuelans do want Maduro to go. Um, and that majority would be a largely popular majority in the sense of class. So largely, you know, informal working class, the unemployed uh, people of low income, um, which is most Venezuelans these days. Um, and so the support for the government that we saw in the past has, you know, significantly re reduced. That, however, doesn't translate directly into positive support for the opposition. So again, it's a complicated somewhat messy reality that we have to grapple with that, you know, there's millions of people who clearly are upset with Maduro and previously supported the Chavista project. And a significant portion of those from what we can gather um, are not, you know, gung ho about the opposition, not gung ho about Guaido. And what do you think, given all these competing narratives, how should folks who support self-determination non-intervention. How should we be framing the discussion in the U.S.? I think in the U.S. we have to start with the threat of U.S. war. Um, I think that has to be a priority. I think that um, I, I don't agree with the argument that that should, you know, people should be supporting Maduro, but I think we should be utterly opposed to uh, the U.S. war, to the U.S. sanctions. I think we should be going to protest. We should be writing Congress people. We should be doing everything we can to say, the U.S. doesn't have any right to intervene here and certainly should not be engaged in military action, certainly should not be engaged in oil sanctions, which have the real risk of creating a famine. According to opponents of Maduro, they're even saying that even U.S. officials are sort of openly playing with that idea. Um, so I think that should utterly be a priority, um, full stop. And I think, you know, there's other cases where, you know, there's much worse leaders in the world. There's the, you know, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, um, Assad in, in Syria. There's, you know, there's cases of, you know, incredibly atrocious leaders. And yet, even in those cases, a strong argument could be made that the U.S., you know, a full argument that the U.S. should not be intervening um, because it's going to make things worse. And we can even see that in both of those cases. And I think that, you know, Maduro is nowhere on the spectrum of those leaders. I think we can have, you know, strong critiques of him and um, go with that. But um, if the argument is that the U.S. shouldn't be intervening in those other cases, certainly there's zero argument um, that the U.S. has any right. And therefore, a full, you know, absolute responsibility has to be opposing that. Um, beyond that, I think that it, you know, is important for the purpose of solidarity with the press, the purpose of self-determination to say that Venezuelans have the right to decide what happens in Venezuela. And the government has been blocking that. So if Venezuelans want new elections, Venezuelans should be able to have new elections. But they should be the ones able to figure that out. If the government is blocking that, we should criticize the government for blocking that. Um, we shouldn't support our governments for hypocritical reasons trying to engage in Venezuela. Um, but we shouldn't be providing symbolic support for a government that seems to be blocking popular will. Um, in those places. And then I think that there's, you know, concrete steps that you can support popular movements in Venezuela, partly by listening to them, by getting their perspectives out, by really, you know, thinking through what they want. Also, understanding that 
you know, a lot of poor and working class Venezuelans may have moved away from some of those popular movements. So understanding the messiness on the ground um, and realizing that supporting the poorest um, doesn't mean supporting the government. It's a, it's a difficult thing. People will hear this and they'll think, oh, well, if you're saying that Maduro's, you know, doesn't have democratic legitimacy, then you must be providing cover for the U.S. coup. And I would say that, no, I'm explicitly arguing the opposite of that, that, um, you know, we absolutely have to be opposed to a U.S.-led coup, opposed to U.S. intervention there. And yet, it doesn't mean we should be supporting Maduro. It doesn't mean we should be providing symbolic cover for the repression that's happening, for the you know, utter mismanagement of the government. Nobody should be calling Maduro a good leader. Nobody should be calling his government a revolutionary government. The evidence doesn't support that reading. Um, it supports a very different reading. And uh, the people of Venezuela, um, you know, to a very large extent, seem to be very opposed to his continuation. So figuring out ways for them to truly decide how to move forward. Um, and I think, you know, sort of end this question by saying an absolutely crucial part of that because it gets so little attention in the U.S. is to say that the demonization of Chavismo has to stop, um, period. That Chavismo should not be seen as an evil project. And in fact, if you look at the record of the Chavista project, it was incredibly impressive for a number of years in many ways. It really reduced poverty. It really reduced inequality. It provided a lot of significant popular empowerment to people in Venezuela. It provided dignity for many people there. Um, it had challenges, it had contradictions, it had things that I was critical of and remain critical of even in the past. But um, the demonization of that project and the demonization of individual Chavistas is abhorrent and should be, is something that we need to be speaking up against. Um, because as long as that happens, it means that it's sort of a, you know, it's a new polarization. It's a new project of trying to silence a significant population. And that's something we shouldn't allow at all. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Thank you. Pleasure speaking with you. All right. Great. And in closing, to our listeners to keep up to date with the Millennial Politics podcast, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, follow Millennial Politics on social media, and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.